0: Thank you. Hey guys. I'm gonna sit down. Okay. Can y'all hear me? Thanks for coming, everybody. I like that no one's sitting in the front row. <laughs> um Yeah, I know, I'm scary. Okay, that's good. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so um, I'm going to read from two sections. The first is uh, early in the book, sec- the second chapter, which is our first um, moment um, in Vivian's head and from her point of view and from her character. And uh, this is the first time we we get into her head, and she's leaving Preston's apartment. And Preston is a, is a man in her life who sort of they've known each other a long time, and he always makes her kind of question who she is, and, you know, makes her feel bad about her life, in a way, makes her feel insecure. So she's leaving a a coffee date with him, and uh, runs into a fellow named Randall, who's kind of a classic character, Texas sort of character, and he, um, he sort of reminds her of the obligations in her life that Preston makes her question, so she's kind of caught in between there when she runs into this man, and uh, those of you who know Houston will... Recognize some local color here, and if you don't, then this gives you an idea of the world that Vivian lives in. So. Yeah, that's better. I am insane, Vivian thought. She straightened her shoulders and strode down the driveway, ignoring the blisters burning her heels. It occurred to her that she didn't entirely remember the way back to her car. But she knew it wasn't far. Better to be lost than to slip further into insanity at Preston's. Her mind felt ablaze. It might have been the cigarette, but it was probably Preston. He was always jabbing her, questioning her, finding fault with her desires. It was the same last time she ran into him a few weeks ago at Vladimir's birthday party. They were at a poorly lit bar, sitting around a sticky wooden table with a bunch of people she didn't know. It wasn't her kind of place, and it hadn't been clear to her if it was a gay bar, despite the fact that Blad was gay. She didn't ask Blad or Preston about it because she was embarrassed that she didn't know. She and Preston had 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 a conversational wrangle about reality television, Preston declaring it yet another terrible thing about the world. He'd been a little drunk, but it was endearing because he got so passionate about his arguments. But Vivian mainly remembered feeling stomped. She'd only been arguing that reality television was entertaining. Preston had wanted her to justify her position. All she could say, over and over, was that she personally found it entertaining. Preston claimed this was insufficient justification. She tried to get drunk, but the men weren't offering to buy drinks, and no one had seemed impressed with her except for Preston, but she never could tell with him. Preston probably didn't remember that night, which didn't come as a a shock because one of her most firmly held convictions was that men never remember anything, and if they do, they remember very little and always the wrong or unimportant things. Sometimes she felt this worked to her benefit, but mostly it impeded her. She was in the mood to hear Bucky, whom she was currently dating, tell the story of when they first met. She was forced to ask, and did you think I was beautiful? To which he would reply, of course I did, baby. All he really remembered was what he ate for dinner that night. It wasn't such a romantic story. Carly introduced them at a prayerwood church benefit, benefit three months earlier. They exchanged soft conversation over a barbecued quail, but she thought he should indulge her in a little exaggeration. Vivian's dreams were full of men who remembered. They remembered their eyes falling upon her in bountiful detail. They remembered exactly the words they'd spoken regarding marriage and children, even years out. They remembered in juicy specificity stories about other women they had dated. They even asked Vivian about things they hoped she remembered, and in her dreams she'd luxuriate in not remembering anything at all. Preston only seemed to remember the things about her that he disagreed with, which she responded to with her charm, a technique that hardly worked on him, she thought now. This wooly feeling in her brain, was she the one who'd been charmed? The way he looked at her with lifted brows and sideways smiles set her flirting all off course. The apartment with its handmade quilt, and Preston with that curious glint in his eyes, and the messy way he rolled up his shirt sleeves. He was the the gear around which the whole place worked. It had all been so disarming that she had to raise a white flag and leave immediately. She oriented herself from the Menil Museum and was crossing the museum's lawn barefoot, her heels hanging at her side from two fingers, when she heard an unfamiliar voice call out her name, a man's voice. It was jarring, the sudden sound of her own name she heard it as if she were underwater the second time the voice was louder she had only a second to breach the surface and to turn and face it with a valiant smile Randall Stanley hello little lady he said he was always using cowboy language overcompensating for the fact that he wasn't really from Texas hi Randall Vivian said pleasantly he was about 10 feet away on the path and advancing which gave her enough time to extend her hand and evade a hug quite a handshake there he said grinning a woman, in a, lee- in a, a woman in a knee-length pencil skirt and silk blouse, both black, and a pair of slim black stilettos, which Vivian might have selected for herself, was right behind him. Her hair was pulled back in a tight bun, and she held a leather-bound folder to her chest. Out of instinct or habit, Vivian instantly pictured herself through this elegant woman's eyes and wilted beneath the image. Her hair, her hair was loose and flat, her dress frilly and too white. And worst of all, she was short. Vivian dreaded standing before a taller woman. She was five four, not even very short, but she'd been caught unarmed, flat-footed. She stepped lightly onto the path and restored herself into her own heels. It occurred to her to wonder what was going on. Randall with this woman. "'He was a mid-sized man who made no effort to conceal his furriness. "'A thro- throw rug grew beneath his black and floral rock mount shirt. "'Yet Vivian could see he had taken pains to mask his withdrawing hairline. "'His hair was sideswept and stuck in place. "'What are you doing over here?' said. "'The other woman looked at Vivian serenely, too serenely. "'She had a terrible thought. Do I look like I've been out all night? Does this woman feel sorry for me? The idea of being pitied coupled with the prospect of Randall Stanley thinking she was on her way home from a one-night stand was too much. He'd no doubt share his false assumption with as many people as possible. It was too complicated to explain being at Preston's. Why would she be here in heels and a dress before noon? Funny that the actual explanation, that she'd come to the neighborhood to see a museum, was she felt the most unbelievable. Vivian thought fast. I came by to check out the space for Waverly's rehearsal dinner an inspired fiction she mentally patted herself on the back how about that Randall said I didn't know this was Bracken's kind of show he's not a big art guy Bracken, Waverly's father was indeed not an art guy how, she, how could she forget that Randall was courting Bracken's friendship the museum didn't align with the blank's ranch tastes whatsoever oh it was Waverly's idea Vivian said sweet as pie I'm her maid of honor so I thought I'd take a look for her the museum would be delighted to host the blanks, the placid woman said. This lovely, lovely lady works here, Randall said. I'm getting involved and, she, and she's showing me the ropes. She's going to teach me all about art. The woman nodded in acknowledgement of his riches. Mr. Stanley has been very generous. Vivian should have guessed that one immediately. Randall Stanley, museum donor. There was no other explanation for this sort of giraffe, giraffe-like woman paying any attention to him. "'She's about to give me the private tour,' he said. "'Why don't you come along? "'The place is closed up just for us. "'Me and two pretty women.' "'He winked lecherously, calling to mind every reason she couldn't stand him. "'His books were as slick as his teeth. "'He was like a snake, always nearing in. "'But he probably thought she found him handsome was enraging. "'I'd love to, Randall, but I have to go meet Waverly,' she said, smiling. "'And now that I think about it, you're right. "'This isn't really the blank's taste for a party.' "'Oh,' he said, "'don't turn sour.' Vivian kept smiling and and refused the invitation again. The frustrating thing was that she would have liked to go into the museum, especially when it was empty, and she wouldn't have to deal with other people hogging all the space in front of paintings. But Preston had zapped her museum energy with his sad Rothkos, and there was no way she was going in there with Randall Stanley and a giraffe. She could probably get a private tour of her own if she dropped her aunt's name, but if she accepted now and endured his company, she could diffuse Randall's hurt feelings. He probably sensed her evasiveness. He was a slippery man, but not a dumb man. If she joined him, he'd be so happy he'd forget the way he was looking at her right that very moment with wet, loudish skepticism. No doubt he was concocting a way to penalize her for not giving him what he wanted. Vivian foresaw him dropping it into conversation. I ran into little Vivian. She said the Blanks were having a dinner at the Menil, where it just so happens I'm a donor. It would get back to the Blanks. who would wonder why she said that. Then she'd have to backtrack. She saw the risks before her like items on a shelf. All she had to do was rearrange them a little, play with them, and they'd no longer be risks. She could turn risk into promise. An hour spent cajoling Randall might reap unforeseen rewards. She didn't want to admit it, but he was up and coming. He moved to Houston a couple of years ago, from some cold place like Delaware, set on, set on fulfilling cowboy dreams by becoming the biggest dermatologist in town. <laughs> in this short span of time, he'd done just that. At 40, he was the local maestro of blackheads, spider veins, and Botox. His commercials were all over prime time. Even Vivian knew his slogan, and not because she'd paid any attention. It was just on so many billboards, on television so often, that she couldn't avoid it. If you have acne, call the Randall man. He'll lend your face a hand. Vivian thought it was the worst slogan she'd ever heard. He seemed to pride himself on being shameless, and in this regard, he was more Texan than anyone. But Vivian never said this aloud. There was an odd sincerity to his name dropping, a genuine avidness Vivian thought he'd do well to tamp down. He'd lobbed money at beloved Houston institutions and was steadily, inexplicably moving up. Rudy Tomjanovich had spent the weekend fishing at his house in Lake Conroe. His luxury suite at the football stadium overlooked the 50-yard line, elbow-rubbing distance from Bob McNair. He'd sponsored the biggest covered wagon at the rodeo parade and ridden all the way to the old Astrodome, waving like a Hollywood star. Every time Vivian heard one of these tales, she'd roll her eyes and imagine Lynn Wyatt reluctantly mingling with Randall. He could buy his company, but he couldn't buy his company's enjoyment. He'd had his eye on Vivian for months. She didn't even remember where they met, some party or other. He seemed to think she was the cherry on top, the prize that would justify his investment in the state of Texas. He would made his position so plain that Vivian often had to get creative in deflecting him. She'd secretly pass gas during their conversations or feign a sick stomach and escape to the nearest bathroom. "'anything to reduce his attraction to her. "'These methods had to be practiced discreetly, of course, "'maybe too discreetly, "'but he hadn't been dissuaded "'by her less discreet approaches either. "'She'd openly suggested he'd ask a certain, "'that he ask a certain willing woman to dinner, "'and suddenly he'd turned clever and whisper "'that he knew what she was up to. "'Come on now,' he said. "'You won't be in there alone with me. "'I wouldn't worry about that,' Vivian said, still pleasant. "'Randall tucked his thumbs in his belt loops. "'He was surveying her tone, "'deciding whether to be offended.' "'How will you know what to say to Waverly?' he said, rocking on his boots. "'If you will not even go inside. "'You didn't drive over here just to stand on the lawn, did you?' The other woman hadn't moved, but her smile was looking a little strained. He was testing her. "'No, I didn't drive all the way out here to stand on the lawn,' she said. "'I came out here for some time to myself.' It took Randall a few chest hair-stroking moments to absorb her words. Once he did, he seemed satisfied." That's what I like about you, Viv," he said. "You don't feel the need to flatter me. I can appreciate quiet time and I don't want to interfere in you." Vivian made sure to preemptively offer her hand, offer him her hand again. Instead of shaking it, he kissed it. She tolerated this but immediately wiped her hand on the back of her dress. He told her not to be a stranger, as he always did, and set off with the woman who fluttered her fingers at Vivian. Once they were out of sight, she practically threw off her heels. She fumed all the way to their, her car, all the way to her car, mostly angry with herself. Not only had Randall had she coddled Randall in order to repel him, the easy way out, but he'd taken it as a sign of respect, and in the process, she'd humiliated herself. Why didn't she just tell him she was having coffee with a friend and seeing a museum to begin with? Then she wouldn't have had to skirt the fib about Waverly's rehearsal dinner. Now that he'd been coddled, he wouldn't punish her, but she didn't feel relieved. He probably thought he held a secret of hers and a reason to seek her confidence. What did it matter whether he thought she was coming from sleeping with a random guy? It was none of his business. She didn't feel entitled to know how and with whom he'd spent his morning, even if she cared. She sat in the car and pressed at her temples. She missed the feeling she'd had leaving Preston's. That was a more pleasant, flirty sort of confusion. The confusion she felt now pushed her right, right up against a wall. Over and over she asked herself, Why do you care? Okay, so um, I'm going to jump ahead to the middle of the book here. So, without giving away too much, this is a scene where Preston, their relationship has evolved, and Preston has invited her to, to Paris with him, and she has said no, and she thinks maybe she made a mistake. And they made an appointment to get together at her apartment, and she's wondering if he's going to show up, because the night before they had a sort of dramatic evening together. Um, so, um, so yeah. She's. This is sort of. She's wondering how that's what's going to happen and if he's going to show up and how that's all going to go down. Uh, the time was approaching. Vivian dallied around downstairs, opening the French doors to the sunken living room, spreading the curtains for light so the place didn't look so untouched. She sat on the couch, feeling like a visitor in a museum of 60s-era furniture and color schemes. The room was rarely entered. It was the kind of space where one felt compelled to sit on the edge of things with a straight spine. The couch was salmon-colored and stitched with white oriental koi fish, a relic from Catherine's travels. The springs were coiled tight. Sunlight hit the lush pistachio carpet and gave the room a greenness. What would Preston say about it when he arrived? He'd probably make a joke that would diffuse all its dark insinuation. Here was the chamber in which the shadowy pathology of her family slept, which held the frozen objects acquired by fortune, and she wanted to open it to him so he would see it and want her anyway. She needed to see him in this room. Preston judged from the outside and thought it was also black and white, rich girls and their rich husbands, but it was tradition. It was people marrying the people they lived among, as people do, creating a thread over time. She sat as her mom must have, On the same couch, clumsy with a thread, yet centered by an interior glimmer, a pinhole of light. The thing Carly called weird, the thing Bucky called easy, the light Catherine darkened, the thing Preston wanted. He wanted in her what she most disdained in herself. Hitting this conclusion was brief. It bounced off the walls of her brain and landed in Paris, on the bank of a wide old river with Preston. She waited. The time came and the house was quiet. The couch springs creaked. The longer she waited, the more she'd regretted how she'd acted the night before. He was right. She was scared. Of course she was scared. Much as she resented all this stuff, it was safe. It was what she knew. The Preston stood for the unknown was both terrifying and sublime. It was his willingness to take a chance, a deep yet simple sense of how much she liked talking to him. She moved to the big leather chair in the den and obsessively checked her phone, forgetting when she checked it that she'd just checked it two minutes earlier. Twenty minutes later, its silence was like a scream. She typed a message to him, are you lost, and instantly regretted it. He'd know she was waiting and wondering. Ten minutes later, she was at the window, peering down the street. She walked the footpath to the curb and opened the mailbox, even though she knew it would be empty. Funny the idea that going outside would somehow make him appear. Her phone pulled her back, the brief distance from her made it feel the brief, brief distance from it made her feel saner, but there were still no messages. It was too soon to be angry, so she grew worried and sure of what she would say if only he would get there that 's all he needed to do. her house wasn 't difficult to find if he was lost, he would have called. She imagined his mangled car on i fifty nine It would be her fault if he died if she'd only given him given them a moment last night he wouldn 't have needed to text her and come here. Maybe he would have already been here. Outside, a thunderstorm gathered, but no rain fell, just wind spinning through oaks. The clouds were dark with sunset and storm. 7.30. Catherine would be home in half an hour. Excuse me. um, The house got heavy with quiet. She began to hate her phone, the way it baited her to look, to worry, and worst of all, to hope. Finally, she flung it across the room It smacked the old bulletin board and hit the carpet, taking a handful of tacks with it. As it set in that Preston may not show up at all, that he wouldn't be there to listen, that the words would need to be swallowed. She curled up on the bed and blinked at the moon rising behind her tree. The next week marked the arrival of the first hurricane of the season. Vivian spent it in a haze of willing Preston to call and willing herself not to call him. Her mood charged up and powered against him or withered, helpless before him. All she felt in those days was in reaction to what he might be feeling, and still she expected he would call. Though their time together at the wedding had been short, the events in her memory evolved to magnificence, more radiant for the fact of their brevity and their blossoming as the days passed in proportion to the bitter realization of her desires." Her disappearance produced wretched wretched swings from anger to regret. In romantic moods, she felt as if she were reassembling her heart from a pile of dust. All along, she'd taken for granted that she held the power in their flirtation, and all along, it was Preston who had held her. She felt used to no purpose but his own amusement, foolish for thinking she was anything more. Somehow, she'd assumed that by critiquing her, he'd invited her into the safety of his confidence. Without realizing it, she had come to trust him totally. Totally. Vivian watched the rain and listened to the television blare about the imminence of Hurricane Henry, wondering whose job it was to name hurricanes, and and unable to decide whether she should thank Preston for shattering her pride so much that her heart had opened, or hate him for revealing to her the splendor of her heart, only to turn his back and disappear. She felt like a little creature scratching at a wall, believing in a door that didn't exist. The lawn crew crossed the windows with tape. Rain fell from the watercolor green and gray sky, Vivian felt Pre- Preston like the storm itself, invisible yet leaving its mark on everything in sight. He might call, might still arrive. The empty roads and green calm reflected her mind and gave her impressions a dark unreality. Despite the determined fluttering of Catherine and the troop of workmen slicing bad branches from the trees, she felt alone. She thought of her mother. If only it was May, May when the crepe myrtles awakened and brightened the streets with their pink and white popcorn flowers. The stillness of that afternoon prophesied the storm. The sun pierced through the clouds, hanging heavy over the city. Houston, her roads relieved of so many cars, seemed to sigh and flatten herself more deeply against the gulf. Vivian was restless. In her heart's self-absorption, she believed her private waiting to be far more agonizing than the collective waiting beyond her window. Eight hundred miles off their shared coast, barreling toward them, it was a grinding, unstopp- unstoppable storm. Surely Preston would call. Yeah, thanks, guys. So, does anyone have any questions? <laughs> That's what we're doing, right? Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> When did I start writing it? Uh, you need the mic. I do? You guys, I do need the mic? Okay, sorry. Sorry. Um, uh, 2010, summer 2010, but it's, I didn't work on it, and it took about three or four years, but I didn't work on it nonstop during that time, but um, yeah, summer 2010. Lindsay? Hi. Hi. I have a question about the, the character uh-huh. of Catherine. Uh-huh. What is her problem? What is her problem? With Vivian. Their relationship is so strange. Yeah, I think she's... Catherine's a very unhappy woman. You know, Catherine's a... I think she's a person who never let herself feel anything, you know? And that's why she was so icy to Vivian and because she never let herself feel anything about her family and allowed Vivian to sort of be... represent something to her instead of actually be her niece, you know? And... Um, so she's just hard through and through you know it's very sad but she's very peripheral like you never see her it's interesting I had a scene well I don't know how many of y'all read this yet but Catherine is Vivian's aunt and there's a scene um, where I had written her in there and the editors were like no we don't need this so I cut it yeah so that was one of the things that that got lost like the direct interaction with Catherine they said keep her on the side yeah they said make her a presence but don't um, don't have her interacting so, yeah. I think she's just, yeah. I know, I know. She's just, and just ang- anger, but she won't let herself get to the other side of her anger, you know. P.T. Uh, <laughs> why did you choose the Edith Warden Professor Park as the inspiration for this? Um, because I just love that book so much, honestly. I just I mean, this is not, like I can say this, having been a month ago this came out, this is not, like, I think that I can write like Edith Wharton. I just wanted to because it's like she's the best ever, you know. She's amazing. I would never like, compare myself to Edith Wharton in a million years, you know. Um, but I just wanted to sort of jump off that story. Like, this is pretty different from The House of Mirth, actually. Totally different second half, for sure. Um, but I just love the story so much and it broke my heart. The end of The House of Mirth and, like, I like to imagine, like, what if that kind of happened now and how could she have survived? How could she have you know, I don't know if you brought, I don't want to give away the ending of House of Mirth to people who haven't read it, but you know. I just loved it so much. Yeah. Adam? Um, you hiding right there? How <laughs> <laughs> Vivian with Lily? Like how are they different? Yeah. Um well, I think Vivian is stronger than Lily. Lily is the main character of the House of Mirth. I think they're very different, but Vivian ultimately is stronger. I think the House of Mirth is often looked at as a book that's like the social world of Vivian's. Vivian, uh, excuse me, Lily's social world took her down, right? She was a victim of her society. But actually, I think Lily was also really weak too. Um, I don't mean that like in a bad way against Edith Wharton. I just mean as a character. She was just very... Um, she didn't have her her own inner strength. Like, she could have lived a different life. She actually could have even transcended that society. Um, so I like to think that Vivian's stronger in, inside, even though she's up against some of the same, or at least similar kind of expectations, you know? Wait, do you see hmm. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I see them differently. Yeah. Just with somewhat... Just kind of inspired by not the same person. Yeah, that's an interesting question though. I didn't think about that. But. Daisy, um, I know you've lived in mm-hmm. um, LA for several years. Mm-hmm. Did the reason you said it in Houston because you grew up there and you felt like you wanted to kind of bring back the stuff that you know so well? Yeah, yeah, it was that, and also I don't think there's um, there's not that many books set in Houston or movies or anything said in Houston at all. What? What's that? The first Robocop was shot in Houston. I remember that too. Um, that was like a big deal, and reality bites. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's nothing really said in Houston. Like, Larry McMurtry put, um, has done that, but I just wanted to put it in Houston because I never see it. I always want to read about Houston in, in books and in movies, and also, well, because I know it so well, and because it reminded me, House of Mirth kind of reminded me of some of the... I mean, it's different. This was, like, t- turn of the century. It was harder for women, obviously. It was different. It's not the same, but... I, I don't know that much about Texas, mm-hmm. but at least from what I glean, at least from my family in Houston and Dallas, it seems like those social circles seem kind of like almost like turn of the century-esque. Kind of, yeah. There's like things. Right. Yeah, they there's, they're definitely have similarities um, despite the fact that it's still very different. They're just reading the House of Mirth reminded me of things about Houston, um, maybe about Nashville too, right? Yeah. Um, so I just, I, I, I just couldn't help imagining that. Yeah. This is related. How did your, you did reading in Right? Yeah. How did the readers there respond to your portrayal? Um, well, it's funny. All but like the stuff the first section, they were like cracking up because they know those Houston references and Houston jokes, um, which a lot of people don't know because they don't know anything about Houston. It's like nobody really seems to go there either. Um, <laughs> you know. Um, but I think they liked it. There was one publication that's sort of like the what's that one called Paper City was going to review it. They're kind of like this upscale luxury publication, but then they, I think they decided not to because some of the satires, like sort of about their readership, a little bit. So I think they decided not to run it. So I don't know what they thought, um, but so far it's been positive. I think people were just excited to like have a book that takes place in Houston, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on the title? The title is from the ep- the the epilogue of proverbs 31 in the old testament the wife of like what is a wife of noble character um it kind of lists all the attributes of what makes a wife a good wife and um if you've read that list it's like no woman can ever live up to that list ever you know um so you could look at it as like a metaphor for wisdom like what is a wise woman uh, but then also sort of like what a, another way of looking at it is like the expectations that are kind of put on on women, and to what extent can we live up to them? And it's it just sort of to me, it's like a question: like, is Vivian a wife of noble character? I don't know. Um, it's kind of for um, for the reader to decide, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else, or Kate? Hey. Kate. <laughs> so you you've been working on this since about 2010. Mm-hmm. So Obviously, you know, a novel has, can have a really long gestation period. Mm-hmm. So, um, what are some of the things that kind of kept you going through that long process of drafting and revising all that stuff? Closest to the character or just. That's a good question. I feel like we've talked about this before. Yeah. <sighs> um. That's such a good question. Like, why didn't I, why didn't I stop? Kind of question. <laughs> I just I had to I just couldn't not um, because I, I, I wanted to because I think it's fun and also fear um, of not finishing because that would be worse than finishing than, than not finishing to me would be worse than finishing it and nothing ever happens you know also because I love writing it and I just could see it you know and I didn't see any reason why I couldn't finish even though you know it was, like, long. There were long periods of time where I didn't work, like, all teaching, you know? <laughs> so, um, you know, but, yeah, that's a good question think about that more. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.